Our text for today, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. I'm just going to read the whole section, 9 through 13, and I'll do this every week. Uh, The verse that we're on today is, as you heard, verse verse 9. Jesus, teaching his disciples how to pray, tells them to pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. We uh, have been, for those of you that may be new uh, this week or just visiting, we've been for a number of months going through Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we're right in the middle of that, Matthew chapter 6, looking at the Sermon on the Mount in a series called The Good Life. We're looking at the words of Jesus on what the good life is, and we're now right in the middle of his description of prayer and his call to prayer and his teaching of his disciples on how to prayer. We entered into this last week on just the posture, the posture of the heart and the motivation when entering into prayer before words are ever even uttered, what our our motives should look like, what our desires should look like when going into it. And as we go into this section of Scripture, it's one of the most beloved passages, one of the passages that many people, even if they don't know the Bible, even if they don't go to church, have, uh, uh, often have this memorized or are at least familiar with it. It is a passage of Scripture that has won its way into people's hearts. We uh, are going to be diving into it verse by verse, looking at each, uh, each line as we go through it. With this intent, and I hope we adopt A little something that the disciples surely had in them. You know, there's two examples of the Lord's Prayer in the New Testament. We're reading one in Matthew chapter 6. There's another parallel account in Luke chapter 11 verse 1. And I love how it reads. It starts in verse 1 that Jesus was off praying by himself. And when he was finished praying, the disciples came up to him and asked him, Master, teach us how to pray. Now this, this should give us a little bit of pause because I don't know if the disciples asked him to teach them anything else, but we, we certainly don't have any record of them asking him that stuff. Now, if I were one of the disciples, or if I had a chance to ask Jesus to teach me anything, there is a wealth of other things in here that I'd like to learn. That thing about raising people from the dead. I would love for Jesus to teach me how to do that. Healing the sick. Preaching. He was a great preacher. I could ask him to teach me that. Oh, there was that whole... You know, water into wine thing, that, that thing. I'd love to figure that out, just take that to the funk zone and start a bit. There's so much stuff. He's a great winemaker. We're in a drought, maybe turn wine back into water. There's so many things that on the surface I look at and I'm like, wow. I mean, he did so much stuff that was just incredible that I would love. I mean, if he were here face to face, that I would ask him all of these things. Probably the last thing on most of our minds is to ask him how to teach, uh, to teach us how to pray. You have to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, right? 
who certainly knew Jesus more than most of us did. They lived with him. They prayed with him. Cried with him. They suffered with him. They saw him minister. They saw him sleeping. They saw him awake. They saw him eat. They ate with him. They were intimately acquainted with Jesus. He was their rabbi. Their whole purpose as disciples, right? Taladim was to be just like him. They knew him more than most people perhaps ever will. I think it worth noting that they were so impressed by his inner life. They were so impressed by the way he communed with the Father that they didn't ask to teach them how to raise the dead, although some of the disciples would go on later and raise the dead. They never asked him to teach them how to cast out demons, although they would all go out later and cast out demons. They never asked him to teach them how to preach the gospel or heal the sick, although they would go out and do all of those things. The disciples must have seen something in the life of Jesus that impressed them so much that the one thing on their mind was, Jesus, you got to teach us how to pray. Jesus sits down with them. And he teaches them, saying, pray then like this. And notice what he says. He's now giving them a model of how to pray. He's teaching them how to pray, not necessarily what to pray, right? He's not just giving them a mantra. This isn't some uh, thing just to repeat like a superstitious religious mantra. If you say these words in exactly this form, then magic will happen. He's not doing that. He's teaching them how to pray. We could think of it as a pattern of prayer, not necessarily verbatim. He's saying if you align yourself with these things, if in your prayer life these things are important to you, you will notice power. You will notice change. You will get a heart for the vision of the kingdom of God, and it will change you. So it's not to be superstitious or empty words as he shared with us in the prior verses. And it's not necessarily meant to be verbatim. However, you have to, you have to notice that up until recent years, the church has prayed verbatim. Long before Jesus ever set foot on the, on the planet, the Jews, the, the Hebrews were praying verbatim, reciting the Psalms over and over and over, making their way through the, the whole canon of the Psalms, reciting them, God's words, back to God in praise. It's how Jesus prayed. At every prayer hour in the day, at the temple, or on the roof, or in a quiet place, he'd recite Psalms. It wasn't the only way he prayed, but he certainly prayed, reciting Psalms back to the Father. It's how his disciples prayed, and it's how the Church has prayed for century upon century upon century upon century. Up until the last maybe 100, 200 years when uh, more extemporaneous or spontaneous prayer has come into vogue. For centuries, people, the people of God would simply pray God's word back to him. We should, even though Jesus isn't just saying, hey, repeat this mindlessly. He's certainly not saying that. In fact, in the verses prior, he said, don't do that. Don't repeat things mindlessly. Don't fall into a religious rote exercise. Don't do things out of superstition, as if it's a magical mantra. But do say things over and over. We see that in his practice, 
And you'll find that when you say stuff over and over, if you pray things over and over, if you were to take a psalm and pray it over and over and over for a long time, start to notice it gets into your heart, into your mind. It begins to renew your mind and change your heart. And out of those things flow your behaviors and actions. Repetition actually forms you. It actually changes you. So it's kind of both. If we were to say, how should we approach the Lord's Prayer? How should we pray it? We'd have to say, it can be a little bit of both. The Lord's Prayer can be recited verbatim. It can just be said, as the church has done for centuries, just saying it as I did a few minutes ago. And it can also be paraphrased. A line can be pulled out and applied to a certain situation in your life. It can be applied fluidly, rephrased, paraphrased, and applied to certain situations and certain times. But you'll notice that when you adopt the way that Jesus told us how to pray, and you allow that to shape your prayer life, that prayer will begin to shape you. I want to just very briefly pull out three things out of this line. Now, I'm not gonna, we're going to take about five weeks to go through the Lord's Prayer. I just want to look at this single line. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I want to pull out three things for you to sink your teeth into and your breath into to take with you into this week. And those three things are what Jesus teaches and what Jesus shows us is the approach that we're to take in prayer, the requests that we're to make in prayer, and the change in us that prayer lends us, the way that prayer changes us. Here's what I mean when I speak about the approach, how Jesus teaches us to approach God. He tells us right out the gate, the way that you are to pray is to start by an address, our Father, our Father. The New Testament writers would have used the, uh, the Greek term pater for father, or, uh, but Jesus, not speaking Greek, would have spoken in his Aramaic uh, home language. He would have used a term you might, have, might recognize by this point, Abba, Father. Abba, speaking of Father. In fact, all over the New Testament, sometimes Greek writers will retain that word Abba because of its forceful implications in that culture. Uh, in Palestinian culture, to the, uh, to the Israelite, Abba was often the first word a child ever learned. In that, uh, in that way, it's not much different than today. The first two words a kid will learn uh, as a baby is either mother, uh, mama or daddy or some version of that word. It's the first thing that they learn. And Abba, that Aramaic term, still to this day in four countries is the first word a child uses in Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Jordan. Abba. When Jesus tells us to address God this way, you can kind of figure out some of the implications that he's leaving us with. He's speaking about a very specific and special relationship. Not the one, perhaps, that you think of when you think of a deity or a religious deity somewhere in the clouds. We are now to adopt a special and very specific relationship like that between a dad and his kid. Never before in my life has this been made more vivid for me than in the last two years. With my kids, an eight-month-old son and an almost two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, specifically my daughter. It marks a specific right that she has to step into my business and ask for anything that she wants. 
and she does it. Sometimes I'll be in a conversation, this has happened more than once, where I might have some friends over at my house, or I'll be at someone else's house, and I'm engaged in this conversation, right? And when I'm in a deep conversation, I, I can think of very little else. I'm just, just on that conversation, just talking to that person. And there have been times where Abby has walked into the room, and just without even a care in the world, I could be talking to a head of state. She just walks into the room and is like, Daddy, I want some water. Daddy, I want juice. Daddy, I want to go outside. And because I'll be talking, there have been times where I'm talking to a person, I'm engaged in conversation, I can't even hear. I'm just, I can't multitask, I'm just talking to that person, and she'll just walk closer. Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And she'll walk until she gets right up to here. And if I still haven't figured it out by that point, I'm still talking about my own thing or talking to someone else, she has actually climbed into my lap, just grabbed my pants, climbed, put her foot on my knee, climbed, stood on my stomach at times. There have been times where she's jumped up and down, sitting on me. Other times she climbs, grabs my shirt, climbs into my chest between me and the person that I'm talking to. She's done that. And she will get this close to my face if I have not been paying attention up until that point. And she'll grab my face, my cheeks, in her hands like this. And she'll squish my face like this. And she'll pull me close until she's two inches away. I can't see the person in front of me. And she'll look at me and she'll say as loud as she can, Daddy! Juice, please! Nobody else can really get away with that. (laughs) Nobody can sit in my lap and ask me stuff like that. That would be awkward and weird, and I'd be a little upset. (laughs) But she can. She can do anything she wants, and she'll have my immediate attention. And it's not a nuisance, you understand. I'm not irritated. I, I, I would stop anything to give her my attention. I will stop this sermon if she walked into the room. She's done that twice, actually. (laughs) Regardless of who's speaking to me or who's in the building, what their stature is or clout, whether I need something from them, whatever the case may be, she walks in the room, she can have my immediate attention. That is the relationship that we're speaking of. Immediate access to dad. She has it. And no one else except maybe mama, has that same kind of pull and weight with me. This is a bit of the picture that we see, locked up in those two simple words that Jesus gives us when he tells us to pray. How would it change the way that you talk to God when you understand that as a child of God, you have immediate access? That you'll stop the world, metaphorically speaking, to listen to you. You can climb into his lap and say, Dad, juice please, or whatever it is that you need at that moment. How would it change the way that you pray to know that he is not bothered, that he's not annoyed by you, that he doesn't have better things to do, you know, like running the universe or any of those things. He will gladly stoop down and give you his undivided attention. I love, I've been told, like, preschool teachers, that one of the best ways to engage your kid is to get down on eye level. You ever try that with a toddler? Their eyes light up. 
it completely changes their composure. It completely resonates with them. God, kneeling down on one knee, looking you at eye level, saying, you have my full attention. We don't just approach a God who loves us. We approach a God who is near. In that next line, we're told to pray to our Father in heaven. Part of that phrase, I mean, that phrase says, speaks something that is true, but because of our connotation of heaven, it also can be very deceiving, not on the part of Scripture, but on the part of our cultural understanding of heaven. We often think of heaven, right, as that realm that's far removed from where we are. And there's a, there's a part of that that is true. But what does that sometimes do to the way that we pray, our Father? And have, have you ever approached this line or even just thought it and, and, and just assumed or even felt that God was far away from you? Perhaps you look at this line and that just reinforces that. Yeah, God, sure, he loves me, but he is off doing some, something else somewhere else and he is far removed from the practical ins and outs of my life. I have a flat tire. What does God care about my troubles right now? You know, when the author uh, translates Jesus, Jesus is actually using the plural term of heaven. Here's what that means. We we literally say, when you pray, say, our Father, the one who is in the heavens. So it does encapsulate that, that throne realm in which he resides, but it also encapsulates everything else. From the top to the bottom, it would actually speak, this term actually encapsulates even the atmosphere, the air around us. The sense here that Jesus is impressing upon us is that we are speaking to a God, not a God who is far off, but that a, a, to a God who is near. In fact, he's closer to you even than the breath in your lungs. This is the picture that we seem to be getting from Jesus. This is how you must pray. Praying to a God, yes, who is all-powerful, yet is closer to us than the air we breathe. He kneels down to look eye-level at you, engaged fully, dropping everything, attention fully given. This is just the beginning of Jesus' prayer. This This is just the launching point. This is just Him getting out the door. The picture we have is this loving God kneeling down on one knee to give his child his full and undivided attention. How would it change the way that you pray to pray through that lens? For some of you, maybe it wouldn't change at all. Perhaps for some of you, it's difficult to even comprehend a picture like that because of of your dad. Perhaps some of you have a hard time understanding God as Father because your God, uh, excuse me, because your dad was abusive, really hurt you. Maybe he wasn't abusive, maybe he was just absent, maybe he was just not there, maybe you you didn't even know your, your father in that way. And so to translate that metaphor over to a, a, an invisible God that seems to be untouchable is very difficult. You have nothing here on this earth to to understand it through. Maybe he was there. Maybe he was physically there, but emotionally absent. Maybe you barely knew him. In the testimony that we heard this morning, perhaps you have nothing else to go by, and so to hear that we're to pray to God as Father only lends to you a picture that is very painful. 
Perhaps when you pray to God, you, you try, you throw out the words, you pray, you go through the motions, but your heart is walled up. Maybe you've gone through so much pain, so much neglect, so much betrayal, so much abuse, that at this point in your life, when you pray to God, you pray with a very thin veneer. Say some things, maybe act religious, but it's very difficult for you to be real. Why? You've put up walls. If I've been hurt in the past, I'm an independent person now, I will not be hurt again. Certainly not by someone that I can't even see. Perhaps you're saying that right now. What I want to present to you right now is a different picture of a different dad. Unlike the way that we we probably think, God is not a picture of what our dads are like. Our dads were created to be a picture of what God is like. And only that imperfectly. I love the verse in the Gospel of Luke where God actually speaks about good fathers. And perhaps fathers who have made a lot of mistakes, but as a father, you know, we understand like even when we make mistakes, we're at least try, we at least intend to do a good job. What father doesn't, doesn't want to do a good job with their kids? And yet God in the gospel of Luke would tell us, hey, and we understand that. Common sense would tell us that your, your dad wouldn't give you a, 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 you know, a snake if you asked for a fish. He wouldn't give you rocks if you asked for bread or for food. And then he goes and he compares earthly dads, even the best, even the good ones, to himself. And he says, there is no comparison. He says, if your dads, being evil, know how to give you good things, how much more so your Father who is in heaven? I'm so sorry. My heart grieves those of us in this room, many who have been hurt by our parents. But God is not like your dad. He's not like your mom. Even if your dad was good, even if your mom was good, he's still not like them. God is not like us. Your God is altogether good. He's altogether lovely. He's altogether loving. And he's always there. Psalm 27 tells us that even when our mother and father forsake us, the Lord will take us up. Some of you have had great fathers. You've had great mothers. You have had great parents. Guess what? Your parents aren't like God either. They can't even hold a candle to him. God would say, hey, if they're good, just imagine what it would be like to be with me. And this God who Jesus speaks of as Father, wants to set you free from the pain that you've been through. He even has the power to restore broken relationships between parent and child. My one hope in life, raising Abby and Jude, is not I am going to be a great dad. I'm going to be a perfect dad. I know I'm not going to be. I'm going to strive as hard as I possibly can to be the best that I can and to be, the, uh, to be there for them and to love them, but I know I'm going to make mistakes, and I'm afraid of that. My one hope is not in myself. My one hope is that in my parenting, I will somehow tune their eyes to their true father. And by the time they're older, they will know that they have a perfect one. They're one in heaven to whom they might pray. 
we approach a, a God who loves us like a father. Like fathers do imperfectly. We approach a God who is near. We also approach a God who is holy. In other words, he's still in heaven. He's still holy. He's still other. He's still different than us. He's sovereign. He's not our peer. You know what I mean? I love my daughter, but she's not my buddy. We may at some point in our lives, when she's 20 or 30 or 40, have a different relationship than we do now when she's two and a half. But it's different. And it's good and it's right and it's healthy. We're not peers. I'm her dad. When I was a kid, and when my dad uh, hung out with me and we did fun things together, and he was very good to me by the grace of God, he still wasn't my peer. And there were times where I treated him like it. There were times when I thought, at 16, that I knew more about life than my dad. Those were the, the sources of all of our disputes and troubles. It was because inside, I thought I knew more than my 40-year-old uh, war veteran of a dad. When I turned 25 and 27 and 30 and almost 34, and now see, wow, I was an idiot. <laughs> my dad knew way more than me. You know what my daughter does? She acts at two and a half, often like she knows more than her mom and her dad. And we just kind of laugh because it's cute. But isn't that true about us and God? Even though he's a loving father, even though he is very near, there must be something in the heart of a son and a daughter of the king that bows in reverence and worship. Yes, you love us. Yes, you're close. Yes, I can jump into your lap and crawl onto your chest and ask you to take me outside. But I also have respect for you. As a God who is holy and a consuming fire, I have a deep respect for you. This is the type of picture, rounded out, that we should have for the Lord. He is not just loving and close and near. He's also one who deserves our worship, one who deserves our praise, one who is high above. The only reason that we get to see him at eye level is because he condescends and stoops down through the Son of God to look straight into our face. That's our God. In this manner, when we approach our daddy, you know, Jesus uses the term father. I never called my dad father. I called him dad. And it's very strange, right? I can call God father all day long because it's, I'm so familiar with that term. But to call God dad is very like, whoa, that's weird. It exposes this vulnerability in me that maybe I'm not as intimate or familiar or close to him as I would think. And so I begin to just on occasion call him dad in my secret prayer life because it changes me. It changes me as the way Jesus taught us to do. In that place, Jesus then tells us to make a request or he suggests this request when we approach him as a God who loves us, who is near and yet who is fiery holy. He then says, pray this way, hallowed be your name. 
Anyone know what hallowed means? It doesn't mean to carve out an empty spot like I thought it meant originally. (laughs) It means to glorify or to sanctify or to set apart. Literally, to set apart his name or to make his name holy. Now, that's kind of weird, right? Because we think, well, isn't God already holy? And it doesn't mean that God is somehow lacking in holiness and that by our prayers we somehow help him to be holy. Not at all. He's altogether holy. And we are unholy. What it's saying is that in our prayers, we are to set apart his name as being holy. We are to recognize that he is holy. We are to revel in his holiness. We are to praise his holiness. Specifically, when he says, hallowed be your name, he's not even telling us to act or to do things in a way that would glorify him. He's telling us to pray to God to do those very things. Jesus is telling us to ask God to act in such a way that his own name will be glorified anywhere and wherever. Jesus, uh, God himself in Psalm 138 verse 2, you, uh, King David to God, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. This is simply a vision to get caught up in the vision of that very thing, to get caught up in the glory of God's name. Now when we speak of God's name, we're not speaking about a title, you know, like Dr. or Chris or James or anything like that. We're speaking, when we speak of God's name, it is a way of encapsulating all that he is and stands for. It means his attributes, how he is. It means his character, how he acts. It means all the things that make God, God. All of those things, when you think of God, you think about all those things that represent him. Those things we're asking, God, make your name glorious. Act and speak and do in such a way that people in the city of Santa Barbara will hallow your name. Lord, I pray that you would be hallowed in my marriage. I pray that my marriage would represent your name well. I need so much help with that, Lord, because I'm such a, I'm, I'm, I'm not the way that I should be, but hallow your name. Glorify yourself in my marriage. Change us so that your name is glorified. God, I pray that you would glorify your name in the city of Santa Barbara. I pray that you would do things that put your name on display in this place. That you would spread your fame. You would make yourself known. You would put yourself on blast. You would become loud and in charge in the city. I pray that you would become more famous than all the false gods in the city. I pray that you would become more famous than all the false teachers in the city. I pray that you would become more alluring and attractive and glorious and better and wonderful and beautiful and alluring than anything in the city that we tend to chase after. Hallow your name. Jesus says, pray like that. Ask him to do it. Ask him to do things like that. Ask him to act in such a way that his name would be glorified. That maybe is a very different way for you to pray. Perhaps for most of us, or maybe some of us, I don't know who or what, but maybe for some of us, we're, when we do pray, we're, we're used to praying very self-centeredly. Prayer is generally all about us and it's for us. And it's not that God, or even in the Lord's Prayer, that we're told not to pray for ourselves. In fact, in the last half of the Lord's Prayer, we we begin to pray for our needs. But even in that, there's a different sense of direction that you see in the prayer. 
It's not self-centered at all. In fact, the first half of the Lord's prayer have nothing to do with us. It has all to do with God. It's a prayer to God and for God. The petitions, what we're asking for, are upward and outward. Look at the things that we're praying for right off the bat. I, uh, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying for God's will. Praying for his glory. Praying for his desire. Even in the last half where we do, we are told to pray for our own things, for our own stuff, for our own requests. Even those are not self-centered. You notice lacking in this entire prayer are the pronouns me, myself, and I. Even in the prayers that we're asked to pray for ourselves, they're all termed in these plural pronouns, our, us, give us our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us, our Father. There's a sense of community. In other words, there's a sense that we belong to something, a story bigger than ourselves. And by praying the Lord's Prayer, we enter into a story bigger and more important than the little one that we're looking at right now. The Lord's Prayer will change you. It is a kingdom-minded prayer. We need a vision of God's glory for this because that might be hard, you know? Might be hard to start thinking about stuff outside of our own lives. We need a vision to catch us on fire. We need a vision of God's glory. We need a vision to ask for things that are about Him, not just about us. And maybe that's a good way to get acclimated to this prayer. Maybe the first thing that you pray in this line is, Lord, hallow your name in my own heart. Give me a desire for your glory. Give me a desire for the things that you're doing. Might be really hard to pray a prayer like this. And maybe for some of you, it's because you don't know God in this way. Maybe praying to God as Father is just words falling off your lips because that makes no sense. We're taught in our culture wrongly That all people are the children of God simply by being born. In that type of, you know, mother nature type thing. You know, we're all God's children. I guess in some broad, very arbitrary sense that's true. We all were made in God's image and we belong in some sense to him in that way. But in the way that Jesus is speaking about belonging, we are in his family. You're not just a part of God's family because you were born physically. The Bible tells us you must be born spiritually. We're actually told in a way that might make us really uncomfortable that by being born, we're born into our sins. Psalm 51, King David said, I was brought forth in, in, in iniquity. Paul would say that we are by sinful nature children of wrath. That we have sinned against God's glory, against his holiness. And he even says to the Pharisees in John 8, 44, you think you're sons of Abraham? You're actually sons of your father who is the devil. Ouch. Having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. No, we must be brought into the family of God. And that only happens by adoption. We're told in Romans chapter 8 that you must be spiritually adopted into the family of God. And that only happens when you're born again by the Spirit to God through faith in Jesus Christ. John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1. 
First John chapter five, verse one. And what happens in that moment is that Jesus, who is the son of God by nature, right? We're, we can be sons and daughters by adoption. He's the son of God by nature. He's the unique son of God. That's what it means when we say the only begotten, the only unique son of God. There's no son like him. He is a son of God by nature. He is one with God in a special way. That's why in all of his prayers, he always addresses God as father. Whether he's getting ready to die in Gethsemane, whether he's pre, uh, praying the high priestly prayer in John 17, whether he's at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 11, he always addresses God as Father. He's speaking about this intimate relationship because he is one with the Father. And yet when he dies on the cross for the sins of humanity and he takes sin onto himself, uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That means he took our sin upon him to take the wrath that we deserved. This inevitably caused the Father to turn his face away. Habakkuk chapter 2 tells us that God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And Christian history teaches that in that moment, the Father turns His face away. Is it any wonder that the Son of God, who is so intimately acquainted with the Father, who refers to Him as Father only one time, fails to do so? In Mark chapter 15, verse 34, He drops that term and it says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? The only time Jesus doesn't call God his father is when he is in the process of bearing the sins of the world, including the sins of bad fathers, bad children, bad pastors, bad people. He takes the wrath that we deserved, and as he hoists our burden upon his shoulder, the father turns his face away. The father the Son, the Holy Spirit, agreeing in mutual love to do something this way so that children of wrath could be brought into the family of God. John said to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you get to pray, our Father who is in heaven. You get to crawl up his knees jump on his stomach, soar up his chest and grab him by the cheek or beard. I don't know what, is, what it looks like. Say, Dad, take me outside. The Bible actually goes further than that. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says, the one who, make, uh, who is holy and those who are made holy, believers, are of the same family. He's not ashamed to call you brothers. So he's not just an adopted dad. He's like a, an adoptive dad with a chip on his shoulder that's like, okay, I'll take you in, but you know, stay in the corner. I'll tolerate you. He's an unashamed dad. He's a dad who's thrilled by you. Dare I say, he's proud of you. you say, well, I've, I've done nothing to deserve that. That's right. Introducing you to the love of God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And he's proud of you simply by virtue of you being in Christ. You can interrupt him, walk into the room where he is, jump into his lap and speak to him, and he will always listen to you, child of God. Dare I say, 
He's proud of you. Even when you mess up, even when you fail, He loves you and He wants you to come close. For some of you, He's trying to get close to you and you're moving in the opposite direction for whatever reason. And He's calling on you. Just come a little closer. Just come over here. This relationship is what's going to form our worship. Changing the way that we think about our God. He is a loving Father that takes care of us. He's not an angry clockmaker, you know, who just winds the clock and then leaves it to tick. He's not an angry taskmaster. He's not my employer. He's not a slave driver. He is my Father. That will change the way that you worship. That will change the things that you desire. That will change your prayer life. And that's why we pray the Lord's Prayer. Some of you may be trying to pray the Lord's Prayer like a magic mantra. If I pray this, I'll change things. If you pray this, the the Lord's Prayer will change you. The disciples left everything they had to follow Jesus and to be changed into who they saw. And this prayer is a declaration of that. It is an example of the allegiance to the king and his kingdom. And that is the change that you will experience when you continue to pray it. When you pray it so much that it begins to bleed out of you. Perhaps you're not there yet. Perhaps all you can think about is fixing your carburetor. Getting your next paycheck. And you know that's okay. Your dad knows Father knows what you're going through, and he knows what you have need of even before you ask. But I believe that the more you pray this line, the more that becomes for you a reality, and the more ease that you will find yourself wanting to ask God to have his way. Just move your lips. Just move your lips in a desperate act of faith and see if it doesn't change you. Some of you, uh, I hope all of you have gotten this little token on your way in. It's just the Lord's Prayer on a piece of paper. I want to give you two ways to pray this week. One is the way I said by repetition. I want to challenge you to say this once a day. If you haven't already, memorize it. We're going to go through the Lord's Prayer for over a month. Say the Lord's Prayer for a month every day. I challenge you to see if you are not changed in some way or another. The other way is the more fluid way, and I want to do that this morning. I want to pray that God's name would be hallowed. And maybe we're just not there yet, so let's take a step back and let's just prime the pump, so to speak. Let's just begin to do this by praying together that his name, uh, let's just glorify and praise his name. What we're going to be doing through the series in the Lord's Prayer every single week is actually pray. That might be weird to you. We're like, wait, we're in a church. Why are we praying? You know? <laughs> Jesus said, the, uh, my, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Why wouldn't we pray? I know it's awkward for some of us, maybe all of us. I know it's not a, a fluid thing, but let's just do it. Who cares about any of that stuff? Our Lord hears us when we pray. What we're going to be doing for the next five weeks is do various kinds of prayers. We might do some that are more public, that are more, you know, uh, prayer meeting type. We might break off into groups and pray. Other times, for you more contemplative sorts, we might be doing more quiet, silent types of prayer. But I just want to expose us to all sorts of prayer so that you could see the amount of expressions that you have to your God is nearly endless. And I want to start today.
You don't have to pray if you're uncomfortable. That's okay. But if you want to step out today, please do so. I just want to take five minutes. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out and just be prepared because we're going to move into praise through singing and music. But right now, Psalms tells us to enter into his courts with thanksgiving and his gates with praise. To start everything by praising him. Maybe you don't want his name to be hallowed. Maybe that's the last thing on your mind. You know what will change that is if you get into the habit of praising him. So here's what I want to do. Can we just uh, actually, can we just all stand up together? As the rest of the morning goes by, if your legs get tired, feel free to sit. But right now, let's just get into a posture of praise. Now, this is not a time to pray, uh, you know, for world peace or your carburetor or your headache or your grandma's ankle or any of those things. God cares about all of that stuff. But today, we praise him. Today, we say, my God is worthy of worship and honor and praise. Let's just only do that. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to join you in a second. Let's just do two things. Let's just loudly proclaim who he is. Just say things that are true about him. That is an act of praise. Let's say things about what he has done. What has he done in your life? What has he done in the world? Let's just fill this place with praise. Speak with a loud voice. This is a time for corporate prayer. Not, uh, not like Jesus said in verses prior where we pray loudly to be heard uh, because that's our reward, but rather this is corporate prayer. He tells us to do that in this prayer because we want to edify each other. I want to agree with you in prayer. I want to hear you praising the name of the Lord and I want to be like, yeah, that's so true. In a group this big, it's obviously going to be some overlap. That's okay. I'm pretty sure God can hear all of you pray at the same time. But gosh, if we do anything right this morning, let's be people who praise and worship. And in this moment, lift your voices to heaven and talk about them. Let's do it right now.